Fusion Patrol is a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can help support us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Each week, we look at a different science fiction TV episode or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Kenneth. And tonight we're looking at the Star Hunter Redux episode, The Man Who Sold the World, episode synopsis. On Pluto, a bounty hunter confronts Mr. Kavon. He accuses him of being Dr. Novak, a wanted criminal. When he insists on a DNA scan to verify his identity, Belle, Kavon's beautiful assistant, offers him cocktails, then shoots him dead with a gun concealed under the serving tray. Aboard the Transutopian, Percy is complaining about the food and her homework, which she hasn't been doing. But all the witty banter is interrupted by Rodolfo, who's got a job for them. Every bounty hunter in the system is after Novak, who they all know is Kavon, and that he's living a high-profile life as a metal supplier. Dante and team are ordered to get there quickly and take the prisoner. There's going to be a convenient plot complication, though. Every 28,000 years, the older anomaly mucks about with Pluto, and by the most staggering of coincidences, the transutopian will only have 12 to 18 hours to get in and get out before the never-yet-observed-in-the-recorded-history-of-mankind anomaly hits Pluto. Lucretia spends her travel time reviewing an orchard briefing on the history of Callisto and the evil Dr. Novak, who performed thousands of unethical and horrific experiments on the population before the Callistan rebels and the Lunar and Martian alliances teamed up and overthrew the government of Callisto. They arrive at Pluto, and Lucretia is particularly gung-ho to bring Novak to justice. She was part of the troops that liberated a Callistan concentration camp and has seen the horrors firsthand. Dante tries a clever ruse and pretends to be a metal buyer to gain access to the environment bubble on Pluto. Kavon lets him in, but it is the work of a few seconds to check the computer information and realize that the Transutopian isn't an ore carrier and that Dante is lying. He sends his goon, Rusty, to kill them, and his hostile AI program, Billy Ray, to disable the Transutopian. On the Transutopian, Percy dances amongst the broken parts and bric-a-brac of the ship, when Billy Ray arrives. Caravaggio notices, but seemingly does nothing about it for a while, and then when he does, he fails, and Billy Ray takes over and starts destroying the ship. Percy sulks about it and asks Billy Ray to leave. He doesn't. On Pluto, Rusty proves to be an incompetent at his job as goon, and is soon dispensed with, but not in any way incapacitated or restrained by Dante or Lucretia. Kavon sends Belle to kill them, and in a remarkably surprising moment of competence, Dante and Lucretia overcome her too, this time restraining her. But she is soon set free by Rusty, who I previously mentioned was not restrained. Confronting Kavon, they force him to take a DNA test to prove he's Novak. He isn't. But he sure talks like he is. They decide to take him back to the Transutopian to run a full DNA test on him, although it is unknown to them that Percy is still sulking on the bridge while Billy Ray pilots the ship into the older anomaly. On the surface, Belle and Rusty stage a rescue attempt. Rusty is killed, 
then Lucretia is taken hostage, then she escapes and recaptures Kayvon. Dante threatens to kill him, but Lucretia is especially keen to take him alive. In fact, she wants him to show her something, and they return to his lair. Dante strikes up a friendship with Belle shortly after Kayvon inexplicably dumps her and headed off with Lucretia. All right, friendship isn't quite the right word for it. Dante assumes that a woman spurned is on his side. She says she isn't, but he treats her like she is anyway. Little human kindness and compassion goes a long way. We can dispense with the literary coyness now. Kayvon really is Novak, and he was conducting his experiments in an effort to unlock the Divinity Cluster. Dante and Belle show up. Then Belle goes to get cocktails. She shoots Novak with the gun that she keeps under the drinks tray, and she gets killed by the bounty hunters. They escape without a body. Meanwhile, Caravaggio, who has spent most of the episode trapped inside a Nintendo Game Boy, asks Percy to turn on his antivirus program, which she begrudgingly does, and Billy Ray is expunged just in time to come back and pick up Dante and Lucretia. As they leave, everyone has a little time for a soliloquy. The end. I'm going to start by just saying, how many more episodes are we going to see where a bizarre space and or atmospheric disturbance causes artificial jeopardy that the plot itself doesn't actually supply because how many is this is that three if we're on episode five how many is this three or four episodes this um, has happened thinking um let's look at an episode list here not the first one no no it wasn't the, the divinity cluster and then with trust was just yeah, that was Mercury. just incompetence from the cops. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, but the Martian one, that was a uh, weather storm. Yes, it was. With the one with the virus woman, that was just a random space event that bumped them. Yeah. No, oh, I don't. And that's, that's all of them. But it just, it's like, okay. Um, And, because I'm on it, I'll, I'll go with it. The older anomaly happens every 28,000 years. If I did my math right, that means the last time it occurred was in the year 25715 BCE. Wow, that's a long time ago. Which was just about the time that people were migrating into Mesoamerica, and there's some evidence of the very first permanent human habitation in the Czech Republic. But not astronomy, and not people figuring out that there was yeah. a space thing. Um, let, let's talk about the older wave here, because I did take some notes. It, to be precise, it intersects the orbit of Pluto every 28,693 years. Oops. And the I wrote this down verbatim this um, evening. Um, so I, I like to watch the episode again within mm -hmm. two hours before the podcast recording. The technical explanation of the older anomaly of the older wave is, and I quote, bubble universes intersecting in the 10th dimension can fragment a black hole, leading to unpredictable effects. Predictably at 28,000 year intervals. <laughs> yes. I do not know what this means. Bubble universes intersecting in the 10th dimension. What? It doesn't mean anything. It's just, it, it, it just, you know, if they had left it at that, I would be, I would be fine with it. I mean, it would be, it would be a, like, okay, I'm still kind of annoyed that they just had to come up with something to create the artificial jeopardy, but 
it's that whole, did you not for a second think, you know, if somebody comes along and says, you know, Haley's Comet comes back 80, every 84 years or whatever it is, 80 something years. Sorry. Um, 70 something. You go, I I know I'm going to be too old to see it the next time it comes back around. So, um, but it, uh, that's come around several times. So people noticed it and go like, Hey, it's back again. But whenever I think, I think we had the same discussion, you and I, but had the same conversation about the ghost monument on, in Dr. Who, where they were talking about the fact that the ghost monument appeared every, I think it was 10,000 years. And you think who would actually know. Yeah. Good point. That, that it would come back every 10,000 years because that is so, so long between intervals that it, you, you have to have at least three before you can say, hey, that's an interval. <laughs> right? Yeah, yes. I don't know. <laughs> and that's ex- and when, so when somebody throws out 28,000 years, and I now that you mention it, a much more specific number. 28,693. <laughs> yeah. You go, how... You know, no one's ever actually seen it in the history of mankind then. True. No. So it is strictly either a theoretical thing that nobody... Because, I mean, the scientist who discovered it apparently ate his own body parts. Um. So mm. I'm guessing really bright people are crazy uh, or something, but... That one was. That was that was, <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. It's like... All, all they had to do, right? All they had to do was go, you know, this thing hits every five years or 93 months or some believable interval because the audience doesn't care, right? We all, right. They're, just, they're, just throwing up, they're just throwing up a little roadblock for them to bump over. And if you throw something up that has such an improbably ridiculous number, there are going to be certain members of the audience, fingers pointing at me, that go... Hang on a second, and it and it draws me out of the of the moment when you're listening to the show, and you're like, "Why? <laughs> like you didn't think about that?" It, it's like when John Koenig would talk about, you know, talking to an alien and going, "This is the universe the Earth exists in. It has nine planets." Like, I remember that. Uh, wrong word, man. Wrong word. I remember only eight that, planets. In I, our I remember that. I remember. I remember that episode. I was one night for some reason. I was feeling apparently cruel to myself, so I plugged one of my computers into the television and I pulled up episodes of season two of Space of Space nineteen ninety nine and ran them on my television. Oh, uh, that's season one. Uh, well, season one, well, yeah. half of season one, I felt cruel to myself too, apparently. But one of those, but I do remember that I've had some marathons, I had some, I had some Saturday night marathons of bad episodes of Space 1999, courtesy of archive.org. And I remember some of those scenes thinking, did he just say that? He did many times <laughs> over the course of the series. They just, they mangled universe, galaxy, and solar system as if they were interchangeable terms. And they do it on Battlestar Galactica, The original too. one, yes, they did, yeah. yes. Yeah, so it, it, it anyway, it, it just, that one caught me. Um, yeah. So, uh, and, you know, and they hadn't, we hadn't even domesticated dogs. No. 
Yeah, it's it's, 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 such, it it's such an it's such an odd number, but um, what are you going to do? Yeah, <clears throat> but um, yeah, all right. So um, I should ask. I'll I'll ask you. I wanted to get that one out because that one just has been. I've been chomping at that one for ever since I watched the episode. But um, uh, did you like this episode? You think it's a city we're turning a corner or? I liked the Novak parts of the episode. Okay, good, good. That's a that's a start because we can talk about the on the transutopian parts of the episode, <laughs> separate section. Yeah, and I have um, some questions about. I have some notes. Uh, some about the uh, Billy Ray virus and why in the why in the hell mm-hmm. Percy didn't run the antivirus program immediately, um, but. Anyway, yeah, I, uh, I have probably many of the same questions. Um, when the when these when this episode aired before before it was Star Hunter Redux, back when it was just uh, Star Hunter Undux, uh, yes, back back in um, two thousand, um, there was an an opening transmission from Rodolfo on the front, just after the opening credits, because the order was opening credits. Rodolfo's tr- opening transmission, then episode proper. Okay. And I have the text of Rodolfo's opening transmission. And I'm not going to go through all of it because some of it actually is bragging about his upcoming um, sexual encounter with someone. But there is part of this that's really, um, a, that may be applicable to, um, especially to some of those uh, little thought speeches at the end of the episode. Okay. Um, which And here's well, here it is. Uh, whoever, whoever knows what lurks in the human heart? Well, I know now, now that you ask. Along with all that sunshine and puppies and kittens and pretty colored balloons, crap. There's also the dark, nasty bits of creepy, crawly things that scatter away when you flip that rock over. Your heart carries it all. It's the only sure thing I know. And anyone who doesn't believe that our hearts are filled with eternally warring angels and devils is leading with their glass jaw just waiting for a roundhouse right. And he um, goes on in the, the, I'll skip over the next paragraph, that ends with, got a nasty piece of work coming your way. So quick step, stay sharp. Cause this evil, evil bastard, Novak, hasn't a shred of love in his black, black heart. Okay, um, well, there's actually a little bit of um, it's a, a little bit of I'll say value in that. That's not the word I really want. I have a question, or I have an observation okay. about the character of Novak, and that is right in keeping with it. Novak, from what we see in this episode, isn't so bad. I'm not defending Joseph Mengele in space. Okay, who so is what I am? What I am? What I am condemning is the poor conveyance that he is truly evil. The only thing we have is Lucretia watching a little videotape of nothing horrific saying, this guy's really bad. He, I mean, he did lots of bad stuff. He was bad in a very, in not even in an emotional voice. I assume that was her father. Um, uh, no, it was, it was a different it wasn't. voice. Oh, well, I thought that's who it was, but. I assume that was an orchard briefing that she was getting there, but uh, I, I could be wrong. But it, I, I, I took it as as, as a, a documentary. I, just, I didn't see anything 
orchard specific about it. And it's not, and I'm not trying to, it's, it's dangerous ground there to say, well, you know, if you hear how awful Mengele was, that's nothing compared to seeing how awful Mengele was, even a little bit of an example. But we don't even get any verbal descriptions of what types of things he did. Not really, just, you know, he did some really nasty genetic experiments to these people. It was, it was, it was horrific. It was, it was really bad. It was and really he did bad. it on more than 20,000 people. Yeah, and he did it 20,000, which is one of those numbers that reaches a, a level of, you know, you, your brain just shuts it out. And so I'm not advocating that they necessarily had to be gruesomely graphic, but I don't feel they effectively conveyed how evil this man was supposed to be. And it kind of fits that that scene with Rodolfo is just another piece of the writers trying to tell, not show. This guy's really bad. Here's another person saying, this guy's really bad. But we never really see anything to show how really bad, or even get some idea of what he did to those people, or what, what sorts of things he was doing to those people, and, and how horrific it was. And... I just found that an unusual, a, a, a very weak choice going into the episode. So we don't, even flashbacks. How about flashbacks of Lucretia getting into the concentration camp and finding, you know, suffering, deformed, mutated beings? They can do that without graphically showing them, but at least kind of giving us a little bit of taste of why she might be so gung-ho about bringing this guy to justice. And it just it just fell kind of flat. And so then they get a guy who doesn't really seem all that bad. Uh, I mean, yes, he sends them off to kill him. But, I mean, let's face it, they're there to kill him. So I, I, can't, I can't exactly blame him for wanting to save his own life. He, he seems kind of nice to his girlfriend, Belle, till the end when he dumps her and I, I haven't figured that out. Um, I thought it was like a ruse, you know, maybe like it was a prearranged signal that, you know, uh, okay, now no. implement plan A, but no, it just seems like he just decided that I'm sick of you. I'm going to dump you. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I did. I, I have notes on that because that did bother me. And, and your retelling of Rudolfo's opening just fits exactly into the pattern of, of what, doesn't quite uh doesn't quite gel for me about about novak um, um let's try this um how graphic has the you know uh, let's think about it have you ever seen a um general broadcast program about auschwitz or bergen belsen um how graphic did those get well they don't have to get super graphic i think emaciated is usually the you know the the worst that you see but they you know like like any true horror story you don't have to show it but you do have to build up something around it and i think that's the i think that's the issue i i i just think I, they could have given me something. I, I don't know what it is because I don't. To this date, I have no idea. Was he growing people with three arms? Was he making their bodies melt in vats of acid? I I, I don't know what he was doing to them. 
was he fluoridating their water and making them mind control? I, I, you know, I, I just don't know. We don't know. (laughs) And and then the, um, I guess that wasn't the writer's concern was just like, he was this evil bastard who's, he conducted, he could victimized more than 20,000 people in the name, in the name of, um, unlocking the divinity cluster, which, or whatever he called it then. And, it was in the and re- our fertile imaginations can fill in the details. Yeah, uh, well, obviously that is what they they thought, and I just I'm saying I think that they may have erred a little bit on the side of spending too much time worrying about Percy not liking the food or Billy Ray messing up the ship than than on building a case for Novak being such a horrific being. You know, speaking, it, it's their priorities, and yes. and their priorities were kind of in the wrong place. Yeah, um, I agree. There's too much time with Billy Ray. In fact, I would have had no time with time with Billy, Billy Ray. Ray. <laughs> Maybe one scene. I don't know. Um, he shows up, and Percy flushes him out. I've been nice. Um, but um, speaking of Novak, I made this. Here's a note I made on. I made I made this evening. There's a scene in which Novak is speaking to Bell, and he asks her, "When have I not meant what I said?" And I wrote plenty of times. (laughs) I I, again, I I don't know. Is is that we we even see it in the episode where he's being all lovey dovey to her, and then she's out of the room, and he's and he's insulting her. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. He does do that. He does do that. We see it after Rusty, um, after the first altercation, after the first shootout between Rusty and um, Dante and Luke. We have um, Novak contacting um, Dante and Luke and being all nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The man lies. As as I think all of them do. I mean, we even saw Dante, our hero, do it. He and very, and very company. And, yeah. Very he, badly. I made that note that Dante's a very bad liar. Well, is he a bad liar or just is just Michael Pare a really bad actor? <laughs> Dante's no, a, Dante's bad a bad liar. Bad liar. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 is that is like we're gonna pull up to this planet and after I open the communications channel, hey, maybe I should lie. Okay, yeah. I'll um I'll just make this up as I go. Hi, my name is uh, uh Bob, and I'm with uh, t- uh, tr- Trans you uh, or you or or company Trans or company, and uh, <laughs> like, yeah, wow. <laughs> I would think that for a bounty hunter, li- uh, lying would be a helpful skill, especially when you had time thinking about it before you get there. Yes. It's like, what were you doing in advance of this? Cleaning the guns? <laughs> Having more food? Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> but there, there were, but I, to, to the point about Michael Perez acting, there are a couple of scenes in this in particular. Uh, once he's hooked up with Bell and some of his line delivery, or actually going all the way back to when uh, Novak says, why don't we go down to my lab and run the DNA test or something like that. There's just a few lines that are just so dead and so unconvincing that she's like, he's not even, he's barely phoning it in. And I don't know if this was an unhappy set for him or, or what, but it's like, okay, uh, he hasn't, 
he he's not he's not convincing me he's not Tony Bellicana oh. from the greatest American hero and and I think that the calling of an actor is that he's supposed to be able to convince me that I'm watching the character not the actor and it's kind of what I get on him but so you know sometimes when he delivers a line it's like am I supposed to believe this is Dante being terrible at delivering a line or is is it just he is terrible at delivering a line and and what is why is the director not saying hey let's do that one again this time with feeling <laughs> um yes and that director by the way was Luke Chalifeur Aha. I looked the all this up. The man who likes to spin the camera around 360 degrees. Yes. Didn't that, like that. And the writer was Julian Ficus. Mm, plant man. Um, F-I-K-U-S. I have noticed these names all over first season episodes as I've gone through them. I wonder if that's... <laughs> Once again, it's like, the, it's like the first one who it turns out it wasn't. That name, it makes me think it's a pseudonym. <laughs> yeah. but, but maybe it's just a canadian a canadian name that i've never heard before but um i did have a question um uh, coming out of this episode um for this most recent time whatever number it is that i've seen it and that is a question the episode does not answer okay was the orchard directly involved in the Celestian civil war that is not a question that crossed my mind but I can see how it's a possibility um, because it seems that it's something to do with the divinity cluster. Now, cluster, now, which side do you think that they would be on? The, the, the Republic. The ones that were doing the experiments? Yes. See, now I would think they would be on the other side, the lunar forces, because they wanted to stop them from doing whatever it is they were doing with the divinity cluster or overtake them and steal their research, which appears to be what they're after even now. The reason I say this is that Novak was obviously working on the cluster. He said, he he, he admitted to it. He said he, the cluster the lives. Right. Um, and um, he said, I once had a very different calling, bioengineering, I was going to create the new man, something divine, quote, unquote. Uh, and so he... Clearly, uh, he strikes me as being someone who is probably orchard. Hmm. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with it. Could be either way. I could see how orchard could be on either, either side of it. Or with, 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 without providing spoilers, I'm just gonna say, having okay, on my on my on my rewatch of this series, I'm through the eighth episode of season two. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have some perspective here. Um, I don't trust the orchard well, at I, all. I, I I agree. I mean, and either way, I mean, if they're working for the Republic, they're doing whatever nefarious thing it is that they were doing. And if they were working against the Republic, they were doing it in their own self-interest to prevent the Republic from having the... And either way, they are operating on a non-open level and it's not about liberating and saving the people or it's not about see i they were trying to stop eccleston so i feel like that their job is to stop 
research but, but Eccleston, on the Infinity Cluster. But, but Eccleston was orchard. Affiliated. Right. Yeah, and so right. the the orchard uh, the and the orchard actually has factions. Uh, we got that from the first episode. Right. And so it, or or maybe so maybe the better way to put it is um one faction of the orchard was working with the republic. But but both factions, so we have uh Lucretia's father and the woman who Paquette. Okay. Baguette. Paquette. <laughs> Eludes me at the moment. Paquette. Um Eccleston was working on the Divinity Cluster. Eccleston figured out what it was, figured out what it was that the Divinity Cluster would do, which is turn you into a god, hence the name Divinity Cluster. And then he decided that that needed to be taken care of. It did not, or done, I should say. It did not seem to me that even though the factions existed in Orchard, it seemed to me that they were very unified in there that that must not happen. Um, again, I don't want to put... Yeah, okay. There are certain statements you just made that episode 22 contradicts. You see, and and now here is another little piece of that, and, and I... Okay, I'll, I'll take that as... I'll take that as gospel. Um, it does not... Would not surprise me yet, based on the writing that we have seen so far that the writers would be inconsistent throughout the course of the show. I, I, am, I do not have faith in them at this stage of the game. They, they do not seem to be as on the money as I would like to see. And so, okay, you know, I, I could believe that we could see an episode that, you know, at one point they say ABC, and in 10 episodes later they go, cba and it's always been cba you're like okay um so we'll see but no i i didn't i didn't actually i didn't even get any hint that they were involved in the uh Kaliston, uh civil war but you know now that you mention it um it, it's certainly possible it's certainly yes. possible and speaking of that civil war um here in the this is one episode where we have uh, a disconnect between the original version of the, of the episode and the redux version of the episode um in the original version of the first series the year the um series this um, the season spanned late 2275 to late 2276 we and we got this information on sometimes on the screen and sometimes in dialogue mm-hmm the um when we get to redux the first episode the divinity cluster opens at 2285 pushing the end of the season to late 2286 but throughout most of the season with the exception of one episode we have the um we have to add 10 years to every year we hear in dialogue just to make the chronology work Mm-hmm. So, in dialogue in this episode, the civil war on Callisto lasted from 2254 to 2257. Make that 2264 to 2267, and it works within Redux. Mm. I have to say, I mean, I, I, I will, just like the 28,000 year cycle, you can throw a date out there that would 
make me go. <gasps> like if they had thrown something out there that was 40 years ago and Lucretia was supposed to be fighting on the troops and you go, yeah, you didn't think about that. But the the realignment of dates between the original series and this one and the thing, it's, you know, imaginary dates are imaginary. They're kind of, they're kind of not so far off that they trigger a, 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 a say what moment from me. So... Yeah, and, and as and I, as you know, just prior to this podcast, I had to ask you the date again. Yes. I have absolutely no fixed idea of when this show is. I was talking to my wife about it a little bit before the podcast, and I'm like, you know, this show is set like uh, I don't remember 300, 400 years in the future. <laughs> it's like I don't remember. It's 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 in it's in imaginary land. It's in it's in 1999. We've got a moon base. It's you know it it's kind of kind of thing. So uh, that. Yeah, I, I I guess it's nice of them to try to make the effort to fix it up, but it it didn't uh, it wasn't unless that you know starts playing real havoc later on that it's not going to be too too big of a problem. Um, you know, as I said, I'm a detail oriented person, so I well, and I I and do. I do pick up on and as I go <laughs> as I'm going through this rewatch again, I'm picking up on every instance people even refer back to an episode, even if it's half a second. To the, that, that is that is one of the, in a way, one of the sad things about doing this podcast is I remember doing this when watching UFO in Space 1999, shows I loved yeah. and, and, and still, you know, to, to a certain degree loved. But as I watched through them and was, you know, taking notes, <laughs> it's like suddenly you're picking up on stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, huh. yeah, yeah, okay, well, they, uh, yeah. <laughs> So, um, I will it, say that it, very quickly that UFO or shows that UFO was a, a better series than either of the seasons of Space 1999. You know, in many ways, it was. Um, it, it, it was in many ways. It was certainly more ambitious, I think. I think it was, but and darker, and, but it wasn't as beautiful. But no, um, it was it darker, was, it, it had the um. Moon babes with purple wigs. That was always fun. Um, um, Gay Ellis was a, my favorite character. Um, um, but I do, um, but I do, I'll never forget the episode where um, Straker had to let his son die to save the world. Yeah, that was, that's a, that, that was not a, that was not a happy series for Mr. Straker. No. It was not. Now, I have a question. How yes. come they got paid? Um, even double. Nobody. Maybe they took pictures. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't really see them take pictures. The, if the only thing that they could bring in terms of documentation would be a DNA test that they ran, which came back negative. Right. So basically, they murdered a man who wasn't Novak, and then they left, and his base got blown up. By the older anomaly, where it looked like it got blown up by the older anomaly, leaving nothing left. And not only an, did they get paid, they got paid double. I may have an answer for you there. Uh, okay. Um, who do you think put up the bounty? Orchard. Yeah. Don't you it think it did orchard, cross my mind. Don't you think the orchard knew? I, I, that's a good question. Did they know that he got 
it really was him and then he really got killed. I guess maybe if Lucretia reported it back and said, yeah, yeah. he knew about the Divinity Cluster, it was Novak, he's dead, maybe. But Dante sure didn't seem very concerned about getting that body out for proof because I think that's the way dead or alive works on a bounty. You have to prove it somehow. And maybe you don't have to drag the body back to Dodge City and plunk it down in Marshall Dillon's office, but you do have to get some sort of documentation that he's dead. And in this case, okay, we got to go. And they just ran off and left the body. Consider this, just from episodes we've seen already. Well, Dante's we, not good, yeah. We, we, we have, I, well, I wasn't talking about that. We have scenes in which Lucretia has reported to the orchard. They expect regular reports from her. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sure that she did report it to the orchard. So if the orchard put the money up, yes, I get that's why they got paid. But looking at it from Dante's point of view, he took no steps to actually secure their proof expenses for this trip and amusingly if <laughs> amusingly if the concern was getting novak dead nobody had to do anything because the twenty-eight thousand six hundred ninety-one year event was going to mm -hmm. rush along and kill him anyway <laughs> i thought about that too <laughs> it's like, unless you know Unless they said, we got to get this guy off now because Pluto is going to get destroyed. Maybe that's why Orchard decided to push it now. Because it seems to me like this guy would be pretty easy to track down, all oh. things considered. Oh, yes. And speaking of that, I did write it. I wrote, I have three pages of notes here. Um, here's one. Um, Novak says early in the episode, nobody just shows up out here. Yeah. Um, but he's out there selling ores. Yep. Okay. I would think that you And people you'd are write. showing up and people are showing up and buying ores. That that's a good question. I mean, would you not radio ahead and, and make out a deal? Because would you show up on the door and say, Hey, I'd like to hammer out a deal for some titanium and, and he says, Well, I want uh I want seven million a kilo and they go, But I can get it for six million a kilo on Neptune. Well, you should have asked them first, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, and and as Dante says, nobody hangs out on Pluto that isn't hiding from something. It's like, well, no, actually, I think he's getting rich. Yes. And and a lot of people will go hang out in the middle of nowhere to get rich. And why is it called the man who sold the world? I was thinking about that. Too. It was a literally selling off the ores of Pluto, and that's why. <laughs> we we could have called the episode. A businessman. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, um, oh, okay. or, or, or is the world Callisto? Maybe, maybe. Uh, yeah, it just like, okay. Uh, all right. Um, so far, most of the episodes have had something in the title that kind of makes you go. Siren song was a little bit of a stretch, but yeah, I didn't quite get this one. So. Okay, let me just uh, double check here. I've already picked on Mr. Perret's acting. Um, Lucretia. Yes. At first, it comes off like, we need to bring this guy to justice, this criminal, this horrible, horrible, horrible man. 
doesn't it? Yes, it does. But once she gets there, it's suddenly it's like, this guy's got a secret I need to secure. The justice angle seems to fall away. And now I'm wondering, because I think I've mentioned this, Lucretia's the only one on the ship I like. She seems to be the genuine human being. This is not entirely consistent. I know she works for her dad. She's desperate for her dad's love and approval. And she's and not they telling... are obviously evil. Yes, and, she, and <laughs> oh, well, there are factions, but never mind. But even the good ones are somewhat mm, iffy. Yeah. Um, but um, but keep keep in mind, Dante doesn't know any of this yet. He has some vague hints of something going on. She has secrets. So mm -hmm. how much? So consider what she's telling dante and what she's keeping and what she and what she says when she's talking to novak in private yeah so my question is then is it all a front is she really just the scheming uh member of orchard or was there some was there some honesty and integrity in her indignation that that bit about i was in the troops that liberated a concentration camp and i saw how horrible it was and is she, is she, I mean, I'm not saying she didn't do that, but was that just a cover so that she could get at him or is she conflicted? Is she, she both a, a decent human being and uh, an evil co-conspirator that could tolerate? Cause you know, that's the next question. You, if Orchard put up the bounty and they're bringing back Novak, they're not going to bring him to justice. They're going to put him to work in a lab. That's true. She must know that. Yes. To answer your question, she is conflicted. She's, she's, she's also loyal to and protective of the crew. And those okay. come into conflict sometimes. And, and you can kind of see that. I mean, even in the scene we're in the, the lunchroom, in the earlier ep, uh, part of the episode, once again, Percy's annoying, Dante's flipping jerk, and Lucretia is the only one there who comes off as peacemaker, reasonable human being um you know all of those things and and not like she's just putting up with these people she actually sounds like she cares a little bit she about does. their their well-being and uh, that it's just such a it it's just such a confusing setup because again as i say there have been things that have been happening in the story that make me think i can't trust the writers to not, you know, but you can have a character who's good throughout a show and then suddenly a writer decides that they're going to make them evil and they can just flip them. And then it's up to the audience to do their headcanon to look back and go, oh, yes, there was that time that she kicked a puppy. That was the proof that she was evil. And in the reality is, is that they never even considered making her evil at that point. And so I'm, I'm in, I'm in a flux state where I just, when I watch it, I don't, I just don't trust them not to pull the rug out from under me and, and not have given me a believable backstory to it at that stage. And, and so I'm still, I'm kind of in team Lucretia's camp here, but they did give me some room to wonder about it uh, at this time. Lucretia is a, um, a good person. Who finds herself oh. in difficult situations. All right. Um, all right, I'm going to get a couple things out of the way before we turn our attention to Percy and Billy Ray. Because anything 
<clears throat> Billy Ray, oh boy. <clears throat> yeah. Um, the closing monologues. Um, yes. I felt all three of them back to back was a bit much. Um, Percy's was the only one that really said anything to me. I mean, Dante's was just like, and, and Lucretia's was so unmemorable. I can't even remember what it was. Um, but you know, Percy's was like, I hate all human beings. Um, they're all stupid. Uh, everybody I meet, you know, all of the criminals that my uncle brings in, they're all bad people. I mean, all humans are bad. Like she, she, I, I suppose I, I hold a theory. I hold a theory hypothesis. Let's get that right. I hold a hypothesis and I have worked with police officers, uh, in my day job or retired police officers in my day job that when they're on the beat, right, they encounter two kinds of people. They encounter people who are criminals and they encounter people who are pissed off, upset, unhappy. They've been broken in. They're in the terrible circumstance. They're frustrated. They're angry. They're hurt. Right? They never meet, they're never in a good situation. And if you're constantly day in and day out and day in and day out, just subjected to the worst, you will think the worst. Of course. And and in working with these retired policemen, some of them were homicide cops. You do not ever want to have lunch with a homis- an ex-homicide cop telling you about, you know, their 20 years on the force because it's horrific. And... And, you know, they they can be laughing and joking about it and and nice enough people. But you can really tell that their souls have been leathered up from from all the <laughs> the, the horrific stuff. So I got that from Percy. I, I, I get that that's kind of what they're going at, because the only people Percy ever bumps into, apart from the crew, are our criminals, are the criminals. But she is self-aware of it enough to know that the only people she encounters are criminals so i would i would hope that if you you know put two and two together like that which she clearly did in that monologue that she would be open would not paint the entire human species in that light those were the thoughts that came to mind as she gave that thing i said that's a little bit over the line but then percy is nothing if not over the line in in all things or under the line depending on which particular thing it is she's doing percy is not well adjusted oh yeah oh yeah she is in need of a shrink uh yes in the worst possible way i'm just gonna say that is one heck of a big landing bay that is actually that's in the redux the uh Abel gave it that big landing bay in Redux, so it fit well with the retconned interiors on this on four for the second season. Um, but um, if you watch watching it in the original um, unaltered, it is a different experience. It's a much smaller ship and a much smaller landing bay. What it reminded me of is the completely asinine interiors that they use. On the J.J. Abrams Star Trek films. Oh, a brewery. A brewery, yeah. <laughs> and and the interior of the Discovery. I've never watched that piece of shit, so never mind. <laughs> so, the, well, it, it like the brewery, they will have, you know, 
they'll show shots of elevators traveling through completely, absolutely vast, empty dead space. And it's just like the visualization department. What were you thinking? What, 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 what? What universe are you? Do you think you're supposed to be in it? Or this supposed to, in a few years, you're supposed to have the Enterprise from the Cage. Well, okay, there was one of the short treks, which are made by the people of the, you know, the Discovery crew, and it was set on the Enterprise of the Cage era with Spock and Number One, mm-hmm. and they are trapped in an elevator. And when you get outside the elevator, the inside of the Enterprise is a vast huge empty series of of like almost like roller coasters where other elevators are along on different you know they're not Mm in it's just you just look at it and go how stupid is your graphic designer department and that's what i felt when i saw that landing bay i thought inside of the discovery stupid wasted space (laughs) it's got what four landing pads in it that take up approximately one 16th of the total volume of that space for all of them put together and then there's just this big and and you know maybe there's an excuse like you know like the gap at the front of the millennium falcon or something that's supposed to be some sort of a grappling hook that they retconned in or you know maybe some sort of cruise ship docks inside the front of the thing that's massive but it just it's like yeah that well, you're yeah, getting no. you're getting to a point about the ship. Um, I prefer the ship in the unaltered first season. Where it was smaller, it was rougher looking. It sold the idea of of being a former luxury liner that is no longer luxury, and the landing bay was much smaller. So it, um, I preferred that. I don't know why people retconned it for season two, and then that left the um, situation that when people went through to do the remastering, um, they just brought season one um, optics up to season two optics. Mm-hmm. With, 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 with very few exceptions. Yeah. Okay, shall we talk about the damn virus? Um, Billy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, all right. Okay, um, Elvis aping computer virus. Um, yeah. I, it's bizarre. Um, it's the part I really don't like. Um, I, when I was going through IMDb looking at the cast list on this, and I recognized that the actor was Mr. Simon Fenton, and I thought that name was familiar, so I, looked, I clicked on his page, and he was in one of my favorite movies back in 1993. Matinee. I am not familiar with that film. Um, which is it's um stars John Goodman as a uh, maker of um Z grade science fiction horror movies. Um and uh he's in the Florida Keys in October nineteen sixty two, debuting his new movie, Matt, Half Man, Half Ant, All Terror. Um I'd just- watch it. Just in time, it was the the, the movie said the movie is cool, and he's debuting this as it turns out during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, it's a cool movie. Find it, watch it. Um, Simon Fenton played the um, older of um, of two brothers, um, sons of a sailor aboard one of the U.S. ships during the crisis, and um, I absolutely loved. Simon Fenton's uh, role in Matinee. It's very, it's a charming little movie directed by Joe Dante. Uh, it's worth a watch. Um, 
Uh, Simon Fenton as the Billy Ray virus is insufferable. I, I, I was personally insulted. Um, <laughs> I was personally insulted as a computer programmer. Um, <laughs> I am always insulted whenever they personify the work of computer programmers as this sort of stereotypical pop culture uh, rebel-y, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they they kind of go for that, like, I'm a counterculture, so I'm going to I'm gonna write my computer program to have all my stupid characteristics that I've always want. No computer programmer ever does that. The, 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 the jerk at, on Jurassic Park, ah, 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 pop him one <laughs> for for bringing computer programmers down and the guy who thought this is what computer programmers would do i am i am not on board with this at all and as bad as it is and as ridiculous as it is that he would become like caravaggio a hologram that then apparently has to as he floats down the hallway that was bad. He infects things nearby him that blow up and stuff, which is also not in any logical way consistent to what a computer virus would do. <laughs> like, no. It wouldn't need to be floating down the hallway and taunting. It sh- it sh- <laughs> yes. No, it was it was awful. It was it was just awful. It was insulting. And then there is the other two phases of it. Caravaggio notices as soon as he arrives on the ship, he says, no, I think I've been intruded. And then doesn't do anything until later when he goes, I was right. I was being invaded. Let's do some antivirus. Oh, no, too late. Gone. I'm in the Game Boy. And (laughs) yeah, like, ah, yeah. Now that part, bad. Worst part, Percy's response to that. (sighs) Would you please leave? Could you go? Could could you just go away? Don't don't call me, babe. I'm just gonna sit in this chair and sulk. I'm gonna sit by the this and sulk. The fact that she has reprogrammed Caravaggio to bypass his privacy protocols and his memory tells me, or I'm supposed to believe from previous episodes, that Percy's pretty darn good with a computer. I got that impression. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't give the slightest evidence that she's going to, oh, oh, he's flying me into the older anomaly. Well, guess I'm going to die. I, I, I don't get it. I mean, I, I, I don't get this character. I don't get, again, it's not exactly like I'm trying to, I'm not trying to fault the actress. I am absolutely faulting the writers on this. I just don't, I don't know what to make of this character. I just don't know what to make of this character. Um, you know, as you say, she's not mentally, uh, well-adjusted and I guess maybe I'm supposed to think she's a nut job and therefore nothing she does is supposed to make sense. There's a line. It's hard to sympathize with that. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt there. Oh, Um, go ahead. She, there's a line from, I think it's the first episode of season two where Caravaggio says somehow she makes sense to herself. Well, not to say that that isn't somebody who really exists, you know, that, that, that there aren't people who I, I see them 
you know, standing outside the Taco Bell talking to a light post sometimes, um, you know, in, in quite the heated conversation. But it's really, really hard to portray that on screen as one of your protagonists because there's nothing to latch on to. I don't know how she's going to behave. I, I I don't, I'm not sympathetic with the way she behaves. Um, you know, oddly enough, the guy shouting at the lamppost outside Taco Bell, I have some, I have sympathy for because I know he's homeless and he's the, the product of a health system that dumps our, dumps our ill, mentally ill people on the street to wander and beg. But I don't, I, you know, I don't even get that for, for Percy because she's got a home if nothing else and she's got people who feed her and send her to school and give her something to do and are there to talk to her and presumably there to help her and yet still she's uncomfortably unpredictably unsympathetic um and and pretty just isn't enough and and giving her the opportunity to dance around the floor which is presumably just for sex appeal. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, she is the most problematic character for me in this show. Which, by the way, question. What the heck was she dancing among? That that looked to me like just broken bits of the ship lying all over the floor. Oh, yes. Um, uh, what, did Billy, did, did, uh, what did Billy Rice say when he showed up? This place is a... Dump. Yeah. Dump. Yes, right. right. Yeah, it, yeah it, it looked like one. I... I I get that we've seen her sabotage the ship for no apparent reason in the past, and I suppose perhaps she's just recently taken a hammer to some consoles and smashed bits of them, and they're lying on the floor, and now she's dancing amongst the ruins because she is the goddess of chaos, or whatever is going on in her mind. But, but of course, we didn't see that, so all I see is, like, couldn't you have at least pushed the stuff over to the side of the room before you dance around amongst it on the, on the floor? And I, I don't know. Like, I thought you took care of this ship. Um, actually, um, uh, very, very, very slight spoiler. We will see her be competent. Ooh, okay. Well, I mean, we saw Dante and, and Lucretia be competent for a few moments in this episode when they captured Belle but so that that's that's good that's good we'll see we'll see some good coming out of percy i i i look forward to something i can grab onto and go there's a reason she's on this show and it's not just to drive plot complications that shouldn't be there by the time we get in i'm trying to think thinking in particular of some moments toward the um, middle of the season where she is we find out why Dante keeps her around. It's not just because she's related that she's actually a, she's a very good mechanic slash engineer. Well, we've been told that, but it's hard to tell between bouts of her damaging the ship and fixing it. <laughs> it's like the, the mechanic who breaks your car just to fix it isn't a mechanic. They're a con artist, <laughs> you know? So... It's a little bit like inflating your repair estimates. It's uh, it's dodgy. It's dodgy at best. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I have anything else. That's uh, far more than I expected to okay, get out I, of it. And there's something I, I wrote a question here on my notes. 
How has Bell been oblivious for so long? I thought Bell was an artificial life form throughout the entirety of the episode. I, I thought she, you know, that comment about a robot and an AI, I really thought that where we were going was that Bell was some sort of offshoot of his genetic experiments. You know, all that work that he'd done, uh, all the things that he was trying to do, which we are not told what they are until the very end of the episode when suddenly it's like, oh yes, I was working on the divinity cluster on... I isolated two things. They were consciousness and... Telepathy. I wrote it down. Telepathy. Telepathy. That was the other one. And, and then suddenly all that got thrown out the window too. And then it turned out she killed him and she died. And there was never a, merit, uh, never a word. So my theory that she was in some way part of his experiment, it's just, she's just an incredibly hot girl who is hanging out with this rich guy... And apparently likes him. Apparently. Uh, seems like, apparently. Um, and yeah. they have no, no ship to get off the planet. Nope. Nope. Which is weird. But there you go. I think he was rich enough he could afford to to have a ship just in case. Yes. Kind of. In case and of maybe weight. he did and just never told her. In case of weight that comes across every 28,693 years hits. That's right. You, you've got that. You've got that unpredictable... <laughs> cyclic wave <laughs> by the way speaking of actors who have been in the show before and i don't have the name here but the actor who played novak uh i'll get that been in, like many many things but listeners to future michael hawsey will know him as the defender who tried to get raj blake off of his pedophile charges oh. in the very first episode of blake seven he and his wife discovered that Blake was a setup, discovered that it was a conspiracy going all the way up to the top, and then he unfortunately made the mistake of reporting it to his superiors, who were part of the conspiracy, and had him and his wife killed. Uh, which is like the last scene as Blake's ship leaves the planet, it flies up into the air, and then you pan down to his body and his wife's body dead on the ground where they've been killed by uh, uh, Dev Tarrant, I believe it was. I'll have to go look uh, for that scene now. Yeah, yeah, he's in it quite a lot. He's in another episode of... He's in a lot of shows. He was in a lot of programs. Uh, looks like he moved to the United States. Because he, he's got appearances in like Magnum P.I. and the new Perry Mason and uh, Simon and Simon. And it's just he's just a job. You see him a lot. Uh, or I've seen him enough that, that I recognized him. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So a, ca a character yeah. actor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, British actor comes to America, they're going to get a lot of character acting jobs. But he was doing that back back home too. So, do you have anything else in particular? Uh, no, I think we covered it. Um, episode six, um, actually the first one filmed or something like that, but not but not the sixth one filmed, um, but the sixth one aired. Um, peer pressure. Peer pressure. Peer as in peers of your... P-E-E-R. Uh, peer, okay. Not, not P-I-E-R pressure. I thought maybe it was a docking thing. But uh, space dock is a peer. All right. Pressure. All right. Well, then, in that case, Kenneth, thank you for joining my, me. My pleasure. Thank you. And listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. 
Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at fusionpatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.